Welcome to Chaplain Stories, sacred stories from the front lines of ministry. My name is Chaplain Caleb McCary, and we are going to be talking to chaplains about their stories, living out their calling and ministering to military personnel. I'm so glad to have you joining us as we talk about faith, life, and ministry with our guests. Welcome to Chaplain Stories. I'm Chaplain McCary, and I'm here at my endorsers conference, and I came across a special guest whose name I had seen uh, in email traffic and other things like that, but who I had never had a chance to meet face-to-face until I got here to this conference. So, sir, if you could uh, introduce yourself and uh, tell me your current position. I'm Chaplain Colonel Ken Stice. I work at the Army Pentagon for the Office of the Chief of Chaplains, working under our Chief of Chaplains, Chaplain Paul Hurley, and I'm the uh, Director of Operations for our Army Chaplain Corps. So uh, a lot of folks listen to this podcast who are friends and family members of chaplains. What exactly do you do in that role uh, so our, our audience can get an idea of what that position is about? Okay, so I, the most important thing is that I lead a team of teams. So I have great officers and a non-commissioned officer and Department of Army civilians as well as uh, contractors. Uh, the areas that we're responsible for include uh, publications, media, social media, uh, policy, training, operations, that would be current uh, deployments and mobilizations, um, force structure and force management, and uh, all those kind of attendant, uh, and then a bunch of other stuff that kind of gets thrown our way from the uh, headquarters department army with regard to uh, policy and uh, connection with Congress and advisement to senior leaders with regard to new uh, decisions they must face and make about uh, where our army, the direction of our army, and particularly the direction of our army chaplain corps. So you've got your fingers in a lot of different pies then in your lane. It sounds like that's indeed. Yep. All right. Well, one of the things that uh, that jumped out at me and made me want to try and grab you and sit down with you for this conversation uh, was I heard that you'd been a chaplain for a while. Uh, h- how long have you been a chaplain, sir? So count my Chapman candidate time, I got my commission in 1982. So coming up on 34 years here. Uh, uh, After my Chapman candidate time during seminary, I was a reserve component chaplain while I was a pastor in uh, Maryland. And then uh, felt the call to come on active duty, really at the encouragement of uh, active duty Navy and Air Force uh, members of my congregation. They said, we love you to death as a pastor, uh, but we think you have a dynamic ministry with uh, soldiers and troops from what you tell us from your drill weekends. We want to encourage you to uh, consider going uh, active duty. Um, That seems kind of weird. Wasn't really fired. I was encouraged. So I've always respected people who, with courage and faith, uh, talk about what God's leading them to share with somebody else. And so in 1987, came on active duty and uh, since then been serving. So I'll come up on my 30 years mandatory retirement next spring in uh, 2017. Oh, wow. So you were a reserve chaplain for how long? Uh, about four and a half years. Okay. That's, uh, seems like there's quite a few folks who did a little bit of time in the, in the reserve or the guard before coming on to active duty. So you, did, uh, you were pastoring for a while, and then you had mm-hmm. that uh, encouragement to come on to active duty as a chaplain. As those conversations are happening, what did your, your family think as you were considering that transition from pastoral ministry and reserve ministry on to active duty? So it was really a lot of the unknown. My father served in World War II. Uh, the old Army Air Corps was in the Philippines. 
but uh, since then he had been a government employee and um, my wife's dad was also at the end of uh, World War II in the Navy but we didn't have uh, so much of a military family background other than our father's service so it was uh, mostly unknown we had active duty uh, congregational members but it wasn't our life so we didn't think too much about it and uh, back then uh, the Army Chaplain Corps had conditional voluntary indefinite and voluntary indefinite so your first three years was kind of a uh, look-see program for you and for the Army and at that time you had another board and then it would extend you for another three years. Each time you had to get a different endorsement. And then after your six years, you were probably at that point either found fit to serve, good to go, or uh, sent packing. Mm. So uh, that actually was good for us because my wife and I, with three small children, said to ourselves, all right, if it's not for us, we weren't sure about moving our three daughters and uh, planning to live as uh, you know, my, uh, migrants everywhere in terms of just moving every, every which way. Uh, then we would, with good conscience, know it wasn't God's will for us, and we'd walk away. Uh, of course, after the first three, he said, okay, we think we can do this, and I got assignment to Germany. And then after the uh, the second three, he said, okay, the kids were adjusting. It seemed to be okay. And mm. uh, as now all three daughters are grown, two of them married, uh, it's proven true that they were resilient. Uh, much of their upbringing, uh, they benefited and appreciated. Now, we also look at the sides and thought, well, they missed out on not having a hometown. Uh, they didn't, They were not as connected to their cousins. Uh, if it weren't for their grandmother and uh, grandparents, they wouldn't know where to go back to at all for any sense of roots. So there are sacrifices that come with military service for uh, individuals as well as couples and families. Uh, but we counted the costs, and God uh, was blessing us and uh, answered our prayers in their lives that they're all fine and, and uh, for the most part, not wanting to. They like travel, but they really don't want to do as much moving as we have. Hmm. We're just And we're fine with that. Was there anything in particular that uh, you did as a family to, uh, to help with that, uh, that lack of rootedness that comes with all the moves in the military? So I th- uh, my observation of our family and other um, military families that remain strong, um, the interconnectedness between the family members, and so there, there's always sibling rivalry, but our, our daughters probably uh, became best friends in terms of uh, caring and sticking up for each other when they made moves. And then my wife was certainly the uh, war horse that uh, took care of uh, family traditions to make sure we observed meal times. Uh, we did things as families. We made sure we saved our leave to uh, visit family members when we could. Um, I think she brought the stability to the home that made the difference uh, that we would stay a family, not just a military family, but a family to start with, no mm-hmm. matter what we, wherever we lived. And then uh, God was gracious to send us good friends that we've been assigned with other times or kept up with. Uh, for years and years, and uh, in, in some sense, that's stability as well for your children as well as for your family. So you came on active duty in 1987? That's correct. What was your first unit? I was with the uh, 93rd Evacuation Hospital in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, um, and I, had, I learned a lot. <laughs> had a great first sergeant who had been a medic in uh, Vietnam and uh, squared me away in terms of just Army Leadership 101. Some of my uh, peer chaplains that also were coming active duty. A lot of the chaplains at Fort Leonard Wood were new Army chaplains, so we grew together and uh, stayed friends over the years. In fact, uh, one of those chaplains will come uh, later this week to be my replacement for my for me in the Pentagon. We were both captains there. We had so many chaplains living on uh, William Street, we called it Chaplain's Row. We had uh, seven chaplains living on that one street. Uh, had a cul-de-sac at the end where you know the kids were in military installations are safe. And uh, kids were just allowed to play out in the uh, driveways and uh, run between each other's yards and uh, 
Uh, so it was a good place to start out. Hmm. I, I know for my family, now, we're at our first duty station right now, and we live on post, and there's a, a, a number of other chaplains who live in our neighborhood, and, and that's been a blessing for our family as well. Was there a particular assignment that stands out in your memory uh, as, as one that, uh, that, that really had good ministry opportunities or just, um, just impacted you a lot? So I think uh, as I look back at my career, there's been multiple good assignments with regard to great leaders. I've never had that caustic, uh, toxic leader that some others have uh, suffered under. Um, I've had great supervisory chaplains and good chiefs of staff and executive officers. Uh, for the most part, great peer chaplains as well as peer staff members at G1 or S1, um, lawyers, uh, surgeon, docs, all those good things. Probably for productive uh, ministry, uh, it's uh, also the most challenging time is the combat deployments mm. with uh, multiple units over different uh, conflicts. So. You know, I have uh, 10 combat deployments and over uh, five years deployed. So all that adds up to a host of uh, memories and um, a lot of uh, losses of service members, but also a remarkable privilege and opportunity to minister uh, to the uh, surviving buddies and uh, combat leaders in those uh, units, as well as other chaplains. As a division chaplain and a corps chaplain, attended a lot of memorial ceremonies that others were conducting. Uh, that's difficult, um, but that bonds you as a unit, you know, and uh, also uh, now I see many of those uh, warriors that stayed in, I'll see them in the Pentagon hallway, and uh, we'll hug each other's neck and uh, sometimes have a quick word of prayer, but more importantly, share that bond of fellowship and friendship as a band of brothers, really, in yeah. terms of caring for each other. Uh, that's always a privilege. That's probably, I think that's what I'll miss most when I uh, leave active service and uh, move that way. Uh, they'll be veterans, so I plan to connect and contribute uh, to their lives and uh, join their ranks and do my ministry uh, as a fellow veteran and uh, continue on with uh, God's blessing uh, to touch their lives as others have touched mine. So uh, where where did you spend your combat deployments? So uh, I was in Desert Shield and Storm uh, with 1st Armored Division. We left out of Germany. Uh, of course, I remember when we got there and things started heating up, we kept saying, well, they're not going to pull an armored division out of, out of Germany. And... Uh, course we were wrong <laughs> they pulled almost everything out of everywhere i think korea is probably the one place we didn't touch uh to send troops to uh middle east to uh take back kuwait and uh, push saddam hussein uh north uh, so that was with the uh, engineer battalion combat engineer battalion then we had uh the continued detente and we won the cold war and then i was uh, assigned to uh, joint special operations command after my uh, i had nine years in special operations uh, units and commands and taught at the uh, JFK Special Warfare Center and School of the uh, Special Forces course, Civil Affairs and Science courses. And I went to be a first group chaplain and after that I was selected and went to uh, Joint Special Operations Command, which was busy uh, doing their important missions before 9-11. But then 9-11 hit and uh, that happened in September and of course I deployed in October. So um, multiple times with that command in Afghanistan, 2001 and two, and then uh, in Iraq, 2003 and four. Uh, left out of there and uh, went to Hawaii, spent a short time as a personnel manager, and then I was the 25th Infantry uh, Division Chaplain and would deploy from Hawaii back to Iraq in uh, 2006 and seven. 
finished there, went on to uh, U.S. Army War College in Carlisle Barracks, uh, left out of there, went to First Corps in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord now, and uh, deployed back to Iraq uh, for a year as the MNCI Command Chaplain with uh, 200 plus chaplains, 140,000 troops, five divisions, uh, uh, supervising and leading, and leading that bunch. So I used to kid with our former Chief Staff of the Army, General Odierno, we were deployed three times. We weren't in the same units till the last time, but uh, to Iraq together. And so he said, uh, he would say something like, I think, you know, I've seen you. I said, well, sir, my wife's already told me to tell you, uh, if you go back, I'm not going with you. So uh, <laughs> as it turned out, his new duties as uh, Chief Staff of the Army, my new duties in the Pentagon uh, weren't, were, would not require either of us to have to go back. He made visits, but uh, we weren't going to be required to deploy anymore. Well, as you think back over your career, is there anything that stands out to you as being particularly physically challenging that you did? Yeah, I, I realized uh, when I was uh, told I would become the first Special Forces Group Chaplain and I was an instructor at the Special Warfare Center in school, I probably ought to go through SEER. Uh, had to get an exception of policy to be able to do that, but that's a 21-day course for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Uh, that was certainly one of the more challenging courses I've ever had in my military service. Uh, but also one of the most rewarding and beneficial. So since chaplains are non-combatants, the odds, and this is pre-9-11, getting separated from one of my operational detachments in a foreign country are high and could be in a threat condition, non-permissive, hostile environment, then uh, what I knew about survival and uh, evasion eventually uh, link up with our own rescue efforts it might save my life. And I thought that was probably worth getting smarter about and uh, took the uh, time to go through that course and never uh, regretted it. But it was difficult. I was the uh, oldest guy and uh, only uh, major in the course of the time, which got some extra attention when we went into the mock POW camp experience. What, uh, what did going through the, the SEER course, uh, what did that help you with, with your ministry in that environment? So first off, you're, um, when you go through your evasion phase, you'll be put in teams, and everybody on the team has to lead at different times. So I got to demonstrate leadership among my SEER buddies, and uh, four or five of those SEER buddies went to First Special Forces Group with me. So we had built-in credibility and uh, shared rigors and experiences, which is typically what bonds a unit chaplain to a unit, is uh, participating in their physical training, participating in uh, all other things, just to make sure uh, you're one of them, and uh, you don't smirk or uh, make, make light of the, the rigors of being a warrior. Mm -hmm. So that, that always helped, and uh, it also gave me opportunity to lean on them and ask uh, good questions about special operations, and uh, I still see some of those guys now in the Pentagon who've uh, gone up in rank. Many of them are uh, senior officers now, but even uh, the friendships and fellowships. So I think that was as, as beneficial of the stuff you learn in terms of making fire and uh, killing game and uh, foraging and tracking and evading and all that kind of stuff. It's um, respecting each other and learning from others that... Uh, know how to do it well. Well, what was the most spiritually challenging thing that you've experienced as a chaplain? Um, probably, you know, I was sharing this the other night with another couple, that uh, one of the more difficult things happened early on in our fight in Afghanistan in uh, March of 2002. We lost uh, seven special operators in uh, one pitched battle. It was uh, Roberts Ridge, named after our Navy SEAL, Neil Roberts. Uh, made a movie about it, a couple books, Roberts Ridge by McPherson and Not a Good Day to Die by Sean Naylor. Uh, but as the chaplain back at the Joint Operations Center watching the predator feeds 
of the battle and uh, because of the daylight hours not able to affect our rescue and counter offensive as much as we would have liked to until a period of darkness you could hear the desperate cries of the uh, commander on the ground Captain Nate Self and others um, and we had warriors who died uh, during that time and you, you can't do much but observe it. Um, then I only knew by the coal signs who uh, you know the names of the helicopters and the ranger and the Air Force and uh, Navy Special Operations Elements. But then when we brought back the, uh, the casualties later, I uh, realized three of the uh, young men were in the Bible study with me the night before. And uh, one of those guys had taught me a course I'd never heard before. So uh, it fell to me and our unit psychologist to run the debriefing sessions for the survivors, uh, which we did, but we were experiencing our own grief and our command had uh, a lot of grief. And then, unfortunately, uh, one of those individuals uh, suffered uh, later with difficulty in his own life and uh, was suicidal. And uh, between publishing his book and his Nightline interview, uh, I, I felt not just survivor guilt, but uh, guilt as a chaplain that what did I do wrong in his debriefing, his critical incident stress management debriefing? How did I fail him and uh, potentially others? You know, and so. That was probably one of the darker uh, times, uh, wondering if I was doing what I was capable of doing and should be doing, and if somehow I was falling short and not giving uh, to the warriors that needed the support they needed. What, what helped get you through that time? Well, I cry a lot easier now. <laughs> My kids will tell you. Uh, I think I'm more sensitive to... Um, the need to be vulnerable. My wife was a great help. Uh, other Christian brothers uh, who, when I first came back, uh, listened to me tell my stories and they pushed a card across the table. It still touches me as I think about it. And it simply said, red zone, red zone. And uh, they pulled me after, we were at a training event and they, they pulled me out to pray for me, pray with me, and encourage me. That and uh, the love of my wife, prayers of my kids, support of uh, individuals who are uh, praying for me, maybe one of the more humbling experiences. I spoke at a local church and a woman came up to me in Southern Pines, North Carolina, and she had a yellow ribbon with my name on it. And she said, here, I can give this to you now. I said, uh, ma'am, well, what is this? Where is this from? She says, I've been praying for you this whole deployment. Never met her before. Didn't know this church was doing it. Didn't know how they knew my name. Uh, it's things like that that God brings into your life that uh, help you to understand how important it is power of prayer, importance of uh, vulnerability, keeping a support network, um, identifying those uh, areas that, that will help you. And I'm, I'm convinced it's made me a better chaplain and more quick to identify another warriors, particularly my commanders and sergeants major, that uh, struggle with the image armor that comes with being in command and uh, close the door with them, talk straight up, uh, 
And as with my last commander, who just recently retired last year as a four-star, um, we would we would talk, and I said, you know, the difficult thing now coming back, he'd been on several deployments as I had, different times, different places. Uh, everybody on his staff had multiple anniversaries of loss of comrades from previous deployments, and none of us knew enough of each other's history to know when those anniversaries were going to kick in. And so about every week, uh, we, he and I reminded ourselves, as we did with our command sergeant major, um, somebody's probably thinking about somebody that they lost in a previous deployment. So let's all be aware of that, because we were fortunately at that end of uh, that phase of the Iraq war, uh, a lot more stability. Mm -hmm. Going with my chief of staff, and then uh, Brigadier General Pete Baer out to a site that when he was there earlier as a CAV commander, uh, was so intense a fight out in uh, Ramadi and Fallujah area that where now there were stacked mill vans and just dry dirt and what used to be a dining facility was a small medical area. Before it had been a, a raging area with a, a dining facility that routinely every meal people walk in and call for blood type to get next door to the medical point. But now it was peaceful and all the blood had dried on the ground and the mill vans were stacked with equipment that were going to return back. So if you think of uh, nations' wars, and as I read in the scriptures about warriorhood and uh, different battles, um, peace does come. It's at a price. It's costly. Uh, carries its effects. There's cumulative effects of grief and uh, survivor guilt on our, our warrior force. But also there's healing, and there's uh, recovery, and there's uh, gains. And um, to be able to go back and to see a more peaceful, what before was a very turbulent area, uh, is progress. Now, as I'm getting ready to retire, I think more about the wars going on in people's hearts and lives, where they've not made that reconciliation and they've not had that support group. And uh, concerns me for our veterans, you know, from Vietnam and now our own conflicts, that they may carry those scars and that those burdens. And if their family members don't know how to help them or, or get to them, then unfortunately uh, we worry about the statistics of our uh, suicide rate for our veterans. So I, I know I have ministry ahead of me and uh, new focus and um, potentially the same warriors I, I serve with will now be my peers, the veterans that uh, God will probably still use me. Was there any other event that stands out to you as a particularly uh, tough day, uh, your toughest day in the chaplaincy? Well, I mean, I've had uh, a bunch of, you know, um, it's hard to put any one ahead of the other ones, but uh, 2006, we'd just gotten to Iraq and uh, with my unit, 25th entry, and the first sergeant was looking in one of our train-up classes uh, to actually in Kuwait, had not gone across into Iraq, Camp Buring, and he pulled me out, and I thought we were going to make a Red Cross notification somebody else, it was for me. Uh, my mom had, uh, had bad medical condition, and then she did eventually pass. Uh, soon after I got back to the States. Um, one of the previous deployments that my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and we had to have her come live with us, so my wife needed me to redeploy for that. Uh, my dad, when I was living at Fort Bragg, uh, instructing, had um, come down with cancer and had to come uh, live with us when we had hospice. Uh, but really, you know, I would tell you that God is a sustaining God and um, He gives you only as much as you can bear. And the Holy Spirit and the uh, the Word and your 
your friends, and uh, certainly my spouse, even my kids. Uh, you get through it all. Uh, it's tough for your kids, uh, you know, in terms of, I think, what's painful for a parent is seeing your child suffer in any way. When my dad passed away, we told the kids before, you know, granddad's going to die, but he's asked to be buried back up in Maryland. We were living in North Carolina. And so I, not knowing that my youngest daughter had uh, different views about death and we hadn't really talked through and we didn't know where her concepts were, we realized as it got closer to my dad passing in our house with hospice care that uh, she was getting more and more agitated and worried. And finally, just one night when we'd, I'd go in and have prayer with each daughter, I'd say, uh, Rebecca, what's bothering you? And uh, she said, I don't want to sit next to granddad. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well... You know, in our little minivan, my wife and I have the front seat. The middle seat has a, a two-person seat that she sits in by herself, and then the older two sisters get the back seat. And there's only one extra empty seat, and she thought we would have to take, because we said, we'll take Granddad from North Carolina back to be buried in Maryland. Then he might have to ride next to her. Now, it's funny at the time, and you know, you, but it breaks your heart that your child's understanding of grief and, and uh, death, uh, they don't know how to fill in the gaps. So I said, no, 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 Grand, Granddad's going in style. I mean, you know, he's gone to heaven. It's his body that will just, you know, it's either going to fly or go by a, a van or something. It's, you know, no, we'll have to drive up here without him. So, uh, but that didn't bother her. So, you know, there's those kind of things that, uh, for the time, are a big burden to you because you just wish you could uh, not allow your kids to have to go through any kind of pain and suffering. But that's part of growth, and we've all been through it. And uh, likewise for our soldiers when they have to uh, go through hard times. Um, Captain Ripito, who uh, died in a car bomb, uh, his remains came in and I helped identify him and Specialist Long and uh, uh, Sergeant Livaday. Uh, H1, a small landing strip outside of uh, Haditha, where the dam is uh, south of Mosul. Uh, but Captain Ripito and I had sat next to each other before we took Baghdad uh, in 2003. And, uh, at that time, we were going to jump in, but because of Saddam Hussein's uh, spoiling dirt and uh, trenches filled with oil and all that, it was going to be a, a rough jump, and we had a high casualty estimate. Of course, the chaplain without a weapon and without a chaplain assistant, uh, linking up with the ranger chaplain assistant, and I sit next to Captain Ripito, who at the time, you know, I said, what are you doing? He says, fire support officer. I said, wow, uh, you don't have much work over here right now. Nope, this is going to be a tough jump. Yep. And so um, we didn't have to jump in. And then uh, later on when uh, he was killed, I helped identify his remains and then uh, full circle met his father later in a memorial dedication at Fort Bragg. And he's buried at Arlington now, uh, Russ Ripito. But, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's enough of that. And I don't want to dwell on only the combat losses, but those are the darker days for chaplains when you pray for victory and you pray for peace and you pray for security and you pray for safety. Uh, God answers your prayers. He doesn't answer them like you expect or always want them to be. And he promises to give you the strength and the grace to be the person that he's made you to be in the units that you're in for the people that depend upon you. And it's humbling to be taken care of uh, by him as, as you take care of others. Uh, I've seen difficult grief on the faces of the commanders. Thinking of one battalion commander we're at a memorial ceremony uh, waiting outside with the division commander to go inside for multiple casualties from an IED and while we're outside uh, somebody runs from the uh, tactical operations center and tells them there's been another multiple casualty incident so his battalions formed up inside doesn't even know they lost seven more uh, and he has to go in and then 
get through that one memorial ceremony and then uh, ask, ask everybody to leave, put the battalion, and then make the next announcement. And I saw lieutenants come out and pound their fists against the T-wall, the cement barriers, and uh, cry out in biblical proportion, How long, O Lord? Well, years later, I see that commander as a colonel in the Pentagon. We hug each other's neck. He's a one-star general now. But uh, what a brother in Christ. He was strong. But you wonder about how much they can bear. And uh, so it's a privilege to be uh, the person God calls to be in that unit or in that division or in that headquarters uh, to share their stories and uh, be there with them. That's why we serve. And uh, family members are glad we're there and they pray for us as much almost as they pray for their, their loved ones sometimes to, to have that inner uh, privilege to be in their circle. Well, what would you say was a particularly rewarding day or event for you in the chaplaincy? Well, uh, just recently a bunch of the folks who've been working for me all got selected for uh, the next rank in senior leadership. And one of my officers said, sir, this is like college coaching. I said, really, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, a successful college coach, when all the assistant coaches get pulled up to be coaches, uh, it is rewarding to lead a team. Um, I certainly can't take credit for their unique gifts. I had one officer that only had to serve with for a very short time on my team, and he got uh, robbed away to go help another team. And they said, wow, you know, you know, he's a new trainer. I said, oh, no, oh, no, this guy, <laughs> hands down, had all the stuff before he got to me. I, I just hope I haven't done anything to mess it up. Uh, it is very rewarding to see others uh, be successful. It gives you great pride and, um, and also just uh, great chaplain assistance. I don't want to make light of uh, how important they are. And I had a female master sergeant, a retired sergeant major now, uh, Angela Young in my division, and uh, Sergeant Major Santa Diaz was my uh, sergeant major in First Corps, and uh, great other uh, chaplain assistants. Uh, so that's rewarding, seeing people that you uh, led to Christ or discipled early on that are still walking with them is uh, very rewarding. Um, so, you know, some of those predate my military ministry. My wife still has friends that after, you know, 40 years are still walking with Christ, that we were early on uh, the couple that got to disciple them. Hmm. Uh, that God gives you that privilege to see some of that fruit. I think that is especially encouraging uh, for younger chaplains like myself who are starting out uh, to hear about uh, the, the fruit that God brings later on down the road and then uh, in continuing and being faithful in the calling to be able to see some of that fruit um, in unexpected places. Yeah, I would just, you know, encourage you and all others, uh, it's an investment. So we can't always appreciate the little things we've said and done that later on uh, people remember. Uh, my wife and I, uh, sometimes down in the D.C. area, they need a chaplain to pray in an event. <laughs> And so uh, we get these invitations to go pray at these certain events, and one of them was a, uh, an event hosted by uh, Ross Perot and others, and they were giving out awards to uh, family members who were spouses uh, who had been volunteers and helped with uh, readiness groups and other uh, organizations. And sitting at our table, uh, my wife and I with others, there was uh, two ma special operations master sergeants with their spouses, and then uh, after we had a break, you know, during one of the courses a meal before the speaker, one of the wives leaned across the table and said, I want to thank you, chaplain. And I said, uh, what for? And then the, the master said, sir, you probably don't remember me, but you were the chaplain that prayed for me on the litter in Afghanistan when I was injured. And, of course, 
as chaplains, we do that for a lot of wounded a lot of times, and you hardly can remember uh, every face and every uh, circumstance. Um, and so I said, wow. And my wife, it was touching for her to know that that uh, family member got to meet the chaplain that uh, prayed for her husband. And there he was in, you know, uh, good condition. He had some uh, injuries from the uh, war that he uh, still suffered from. But uh, what a real privilege that God would let you be in what was a tasking to go give a prayer at a banquet uh, to be able to sit at the table. And why that table versus the other 20 tables? Uh, God's plan uh, to be a word of encouragement. So I, I would encourage our young chaplains, those kind of events will happen as you go through your service careers uh, that you'll meet people. So as you look back over the decades of service as a chaplain, what have you loved most about living out this vocation? I like the camaraderie. Um, my wife and I both miss not being in a unit with a uh, commander and a sergeant major and the, and the feeling of a spree that goes with a uh, patch and a uh, clear mission. Uh, don't get that at the Pentagon. <laughs> Often say there's a couple different wars going on. They're not all about the enemy downrange. Uh, sometimes between the services, sometimes between uh, other uh, advocacy groups, whatever. Uh, so I miss that. I miss being in a unit. Uh, I, I always enjoyed the uh, PT and the camaraderie, uh, the banter. Uh, our non-commissioned officers are just, they're a treasure. Uh, they're rough. They uh, talk rough. They may live hard and rough. Uh, but they're absolutely good leaders, and uh, the bad ones get weeded out. But they, they, they lead our troops, and our troops come in uh, young and immature, uh, malleable. <laughs> they need a good leader, and they get it in our non-commissioned officers. So I've always enjoyed observing that, watching that, sometimes correcting it and talking to them, but uh, you don't get that in the civilian world. You're not going to see that for a company and a corporation uh, where people punch the clock and go home at you know, and don't have a connection outside of the uh, work workplace. Whereas there's always going to be uh, esprit and pride. You see it in their veterans with the hats that they wear, uh, the stuff on the back of their trucks and the vehicles uh, that just, you know, they're, they uh, associate with their uh, military service. And veterans unions are a big deal. Uh, hope they all can uh, stand up after they've had their party in and walk out well. Don't need them driving home, that's for sure. But uh, I think family members uh, appreciate that. That's probably one of the, maybe puts more vets at risk, uh, family members, because of their um, difficulty of sharing and being vulnerable and, and, and thinking they're sparing their families from uh, hard stuff. They might not share some of the things they've suffered. And then uh, family members don't know what they need to say or do. And I would want to encourage uh, even our chaplains that maybe have uh, veteran dads, uh, reach out to them, make sure uh, their spouses know uh, seek help when they think they need to. Well, what advice would you give to chaplains who are just starting out in this vocation? I would tell you uh, probably as we've said in training and I would repeat, you know, remain flexible. Um, right now we have a big emphasis on being true to your identity and your calling. Uh, you have to have that grounded. You have to know who you are, uh, who you represent and not get that confused. The, the Army will really, uh, they may put it on paper, but they don't require you to stop being who you are as a person of faith. You're empowered and protected by law and U.S. Constitution. Um, but you got to remain flexible. Uh, the Army's going to change adaptive warfare policies uh, that may or may not be good all the time for soldiers and families are going to be um, passed and uh, modified and changed. Uh, Chapman Corps leadership changes. Not everybody will have uh, my experience as a good 
commanders and uh, good non-commissioned officers or maybe not good supervisory chaplains or even peers. Um, but be strong in who you are and uh, guard that and um, strengthen that as well as good relationship with your family. If my wife or kids had said, this is it, we can't do it anymore, I'd gotten out. I wasn't chasing the next rank, wasn't worried about, you know, all those kind of things. I think there will be some challenges with the new retirement program where retention will be uh, different in the military than what it has been. You won't have to wait to hit 20 to get a retirement. You'll get something in 401k kind of world that you'll walk away with, and that will I'll probably allow more flexibility for some chaplains that feel at this point in their families and their careers they have to get out, but they may be able to get right back in. So we've talked about having sabbaticals in terms of taking care of folks. Right now you almost have to accept schooling, which is hardly a sabbatical, <laughs> to get a break, and then a utilization tour. So um, I'm glad to see our deployments aren't as much combat. can't promise that'll hold true. And uh, deployments even to non-combat areas, whether it be Europe or Korea, are still separations. So any separation is tough. I, I never voluntarily separated. Uh, turned down a couple of things along the way that just said, no, don't really need to go to resident CGSC for one year after we lived in Germany, moved to Fort Monmouth for six months, and then moved to North Carolina to go to school for a year, and then, you know, three school systems, 18 months, not the answer for my daughter. So I uh, don't think we're doing that either. Uh, so stick to your guns in terms of taking care of your family first and uh, your walk with Christ strong. And we're just personally, we're walking through that in my family right now. I, I just got back from a regionally aligned forces mission in Europe with my unit. And so personally and with my unit, we're walking through that, uh, that reintegration process right now. Now, you mentioned um, identity, pastoral identity. Why is that so important? Uh, and, and why is that being stressed so much right now? Uh, because you see it a lot in the chaplain corps right now, that emphasis on pastoral identity. So we've heard from supervisory chaplains, even some of the endorsers have communicated with the uh, three chiefs of chaplains' offices, that maybe, uh, potentially, through the lack of residential education or suspect or shallow practical work experience, Fewer individuals are joining our core, male and, and female, that have a grounding in their religious leadership role. Uh, the military services really can't do that for you. We're going to throw you right in the mix of a pluralistic environment and ask you to be a religious leader and then give you the military skills to be able to perform that ministry in a military environment. So if you come in with any uh, shortfall in that area, uh, that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt uh, you not really important whether I hurt your career at that point as much as uh, it's going to be challenging, which leads to stress, which leads to maybe marital dissatisfaction and, you know, um, fear and uh, adequacy, whatever. Uh, so uh, we, we think f folks have to be strong in that. And it's, this is a challenging environment. We sometimes uh, kid and joke that, uh, in our case, you could be a mega church pastor, be, but not be fit to be a good Army chaplain. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's one thing to lead a large team in a large congregation, but it's a whole different matter uh, in terms of working in a pluralistic environment. You're not required to be pluralistic. You're empowered to be who you are, but you have to work with others, and that has to be uh, respectful. And not everybody's cut out for that, and that's going to be a challenge to a lot of folks. So we, we think the more you get grounded in your identity, the less you'll be challenged, uh, less you'll be uh, tempted to compromise. 
the less you'll ask anybody else to compromise, you'll be able to stand up when people say, hey, you're not allowed to do that or pray that way. You'll say, oh, yes, I am, and you are too. Pray in your tradition. Um, but if, you're, if that isn't grounded, and that, that can be challenged as our theologies grow and change on occasion, um, and life experiences cause us to question some of our presuppositions, um, then you're gonna, you're gonna struggle in an environment where people depend upon you for help and support. I know when I was a little bit younger and a little less mature, um, I struggled with my endorsers and the Army's requirement that I have two years of post-seminary ministry experience. I wanted to come right on to active duty and be a chaplain. I didn't want to do two years. But in hindsight, the two years that I spent pastoring a little church in rural Kansas were better than any training any classes, anything I ever had to prepare me for the chaplaincy, without a doubt. Yeah, the three chief's offices I've heard from their supervisory chaplains reports that individuals have come into the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force not having done a wedding, not having done a funeral, done minimal uh, couple counseling. Uh, some of them have been associate pastors and based on the leadership style of the senior pastor, not gotten to preach very often. Wow join the army and next thing you know you're doing it all <laughs> for folks who may or may not come to your worship service so they're not from your congregation so probably the biggest learning curve for me was going for what i thought as a pastor of a church to first six months seemed like a lot of social work individuals that were being referred from the first sergeant and other leaders down to for counseling that had no religious inclination didn't plan on changing and coming to chapel services or anything but uh you were there as the chaplain to fix them <laughs> so it's like wow wouldn't see these people normally as a pastor at church. So that was a big, deep learning curve. Well, I have a final question for you. Um, so you're getting towards the, the end of your career here mm -hmm. and have seen a lot of changes, a lot of uh, transitions in the Army and the Chaplain Corps over your career. Uh, as you look forward, what do you see are the biggest challenges facing the chaplaincy in the future? So as we look at uh, 2030 and beyond right now for Army warfighting, it's difficult to stay ahead of the projected adaptability of how we will form units for the types of missions we'll perform for the nation and figure out where does religious support get delivered? How do we train our chaplains and chaplain assistants for now religious affairs, non-commissioned officers to be able to be at the right place and time to provide the right ministry to the right people for the right reasons uh, to support them in their warfighting. Uh, the increase of drone warfare uh, is going to be a challenging ethical dilemma. Uh, robots, likewise, in terms of uh, law of land warfare and uh, uniform code of military justice, which was right now, as appropriately so, on human beings. Um, the standoff distance which really doesn't uh, reduce culpability or guilt when uh, I don't think anybody feels any better uh, that a drone with a Hellfire missile uh, hits a wrong target and kills innocent civilians. Uh, they don't feel any better that wasn't a pilot. Uh, does, they don't feel any better that you know, the, the devastation, the damage is the same. So there's still those kind of things. So I think uh, the Chapman Corps will have to probably increase its uh, concern about futures and uh, study of that, and then we're to integrate religious support doctrine, and then, of course, uh, how to train our chaplains and assistants to do that uh, on the battlefield. Well, sir, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, it's great to be able to sit down with you and, uh, and hear a little bit about your time as a chaplain, uh, your career, 
and also about what you see as some of the challenges going forward. I think that's that is good information for those of us who are who are hoping to spend a few more years in the in the chaplaincy going ahead. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And thank you, Caleb. And thank you for taking seriously and uh, this opportunity for oral history and capturing some of the stories. I think it will be a benefit to others. It's been my pleasure, sir. And you can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. And we will look forward to hearing from another chaplain and another chaplain story next time. Embracing the cause of righteousness, we're marching on our way. Thunder and flame, wherever the call.